All right, Lauren. So today we're talking about the topic of fan art. And we've talked about on this show how I, as a junior high school student, wrote a He-Man She-Ra fan fiction that I am very proud of. So the fact that you're sitting across from me makes me think that there must be something in your high school closet as well. We know you have done and do cosplay, which is a kind of fan creation. But when you were younger, especially, what did you create, Lauren? It must be something. I I did do just drawn, you know, pencil, colored pencils fan art a lot when I was younger. I have a vivid memory of my my mother worked for a shipping company, a company that did shipping specifically for military moves. And over the summer, sometimes she would work summer hours and I would sit by myself or with my sister in a conference room and I would sit in there and draw. And I remember drawing a really elaborate copy of Earthworm Jim um, on like a like a little bike, like a big wheel, and I copied it. I didn't trace it, but I copied it from the Nintendo Power that I was reading. <laughs> and so I would draw, you know, stuff that I saw in Nintendo Power and then bring it out to my mom's coworkers and be like, give me attention. <laughs> Can I pivot to Gamergate for a second? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, listen, hear me out. Learning that Nintendo Power is bullshit is such an important coming-of-age moment because when you really think about it, Okay, do you remember they used to, quote, review games? But it was owned by Nintendo, and a game never got less than, like, maybe, like, a 6.6 out of 10 or something, you know? It's like, these are not objective reviews. Like, the same company that's making them is reviewing them. I'm not saying it's about (laughs) ethics and game journalism. I'm just saying something stinks at Nintendo. You're just saying it may or may not be the fascist state-sponsored media of Nintendo. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Nintendo has state-sponsored media. I guess they don't anymore. Uh, And also the maps were really good so like maps were really dope yeah i guess what i'm saying is i'm fine with state media as long as they give me sweet maps and strategy guides welcome to yet another episode of she-ra progressive of power my name is lauren my name is eric and today we're going to be talking about fan art. Shira has just a huge and robust community of fan artists. And a couple of weeks ago, we asked on the show for you to send us the art that you like, the art that you made. We have so many people to shout out and we want to share that all with you. We also have a guest with us today who uh, is a fan artist herself. So I'll introduce our new friend, Jasmine, aka Faye. Hello. Hello. Faye was introduced to me by friend and former guest of the show, Jess. And Jess knew that I had recently gotten my own tarot deck. And it was like, there's a Shiro one, there's a Shiro one. And I saw these cards on Twitter and I just loved them. So Faye, first of all, congratulations on making such kick-ass artwork, OMG. Thank you. I've really been enjoying them a lot. How many do you have done so far? Uh... Honestly, about like maybe six, some six to eight, something like that. Not that much. There's still a lot more to do. Uh, well, how long in general have you been a fan artist? Since I was in like middle school. Actually, no, fifth grade. 
<laughs> started off with Naruto and Yasha, you know, the classics. Uh, started off strong. That good, good Cartoon Network anime. I was going to ask you <laughs> what other fandoms you have drawn or been inspired by. So those are some of your faves. Uh, a lot, a lot. I went through a lot of phases. One of them was Homestuck. <laughs> yeah. I went through Voltron for a very short period. It did some work with that. Um, some anime like Boku no Hero. Uh, I can't really name. Oh, Persona. Persona, definitely. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love Persona 5 is one of my top 10 games of all time. It's ridiculously good. I'm a big fan of Catherine, which is by the same studio. I just got that game. I've been needing to play it. It's very uh, challenging and also pretty sexy, <laughs> in, nice. my, in my opinion. <laughs> I like to look at all the characters. <laughs> so, Faye, what, what drew you to She-Ra? Um, you know, my partner, she had known Noelle's work before, and she had suggested it. Before, and I had seen, you know, good things about it. So it was on Netflix, and just got to give it a shot. And I really ended up enjoying it. So what is your, I know, I know you can't reveal all of your secrets, but what is your process like? You know, what tools are you using? How long does a piece take you? So I currently just got a Cintiq, but I usually just ended up using my little tablet, you know, little Wacom, 60 bucks, something like that. But, um, you know, I just kind of go over the characters and what fits the cards more. Some were more just self-indulgent than others <laughs> but in a, in a sense i feel like fan art is is a bit of an exercise in self-indulgence you can correct me if i'm wrong as a teenage no, fan fiction writer i feel that heavily but it's still super valuable and great well i was going to ask this question about fan art but i guess eric you can even answer it too about fan fiction why is fan art important or asked another way what does fan art allow us to explore or to do that maybe you wouldn't see in canon? Maybe it's more so what you want to see come out of it. It's more so what you prefer. Maybe they didn't expand on something that you were really invested in. It just kind of gives you that chance to do it yourself. If you want to say ships, you can say ships. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you want to go that route. I love Catadora. If we're going there. Oh, we're definitely talking <laughs> about that today. What about you, Eric? If, well, if you want to get into your fan fiction days, which I sure do. Well, I kind of do. And, and actually, um, Faye, you saying Inuyasha brought this to mind because <laughs> something I haven't talked about on this show, I think, at all, which is weird, is I'm also a producer for the Chicago chapter of Mortified, which is like a relatively popular, you know, podcast slash Netflix show where people share artifacts that they created as a teen, whether it's like, you know, stories or poetry, songs, and fan fiction and fan art sometimes come up. And I'm, I'm working on this piece for um, our next Chicago show now where um, a young author had written a Inuyasha Rent crossover fan fiction. Oh, oh wow. my gosh. And, and we were kind of pondering, like, why, why this was important to them because they are, um, you know, really... They told me they always wanted to be a writer, but when they started out, they, they just always wrote in other people's voices. And I feel like that's so valuable because it helps you, like in learning to imitate the voice of another, what you're really doing is kind of exercising your muscles and, and trying on these techniques and voices that you can later 
adapt for yourself. That's how I feel. So this person I'm working with now is like a frequent and celebrated writer. And it all started with Inuyasha and Rhett, which I think is so cool. Definitely. I feel like um, these things start with something you love. You know, it's easier to write about things you enjoy and you can just kind of venture off from there. But I think it's important, you know. Well, last week we were talking about Kevin Smith, you know, and something he said in an interview that I absolutely take to heart is before he wrote or, you know, created anything, he would always sit down and, and watch or read and analyze the thing that, like, most inspired him to create the thing he was about to make. And even so, even, you know, as a uh, grown up creative, you're channeling these lessons that others have taught into ideally like a new thing for yourself. And I think that's so valuable. I ask these questions as if fan art is still some sort of like niche thing that we all need our secret reasons for. But that's bogus. Uh, So fan art and fan fiction is just, you know, culturally massive now. Obviously, Fifty Shades of Grey started out as a fanfic. Think of that as however you will, but it made tons and tons and tons of money and was just a pop culture. I was going to say nightmare, (laughs) but actually (laughs) no judgment. Maybe um, phenomenon is a more friendly word, Uh, but also uh, archive of our own AO3 just won a Hugo Award for best related work. And that really legitimizes the idea of fan work as real fiction that is meant to be consumed and celebrated just as much as the source work. A lot of people have opinions about it. Um, Some of the nominees I know maybe felt a little bit negatively about it, but my best friend is a fan fiction writer and hangs out on AO3 all the time and has sort of joking, not jokingly been like, I'm a Hugo Award winner now. (laughs) Yes, congratulations to all 4.7 million fan fictions (laughs) for your new trophy. Well, I know that like James Roberts, who wrote my favorite Transformers story of all time, uh, started out, he wrote a fan novel. Like no one asked him to do this. He just decided he was going to write a feature length novel about robots and then self-publish it and somewhere along the line someone at idw uh the comics publisher read it and was like you know who we should get to write our actual stories and i i don't know i just feel like the culture is rife with examples i I could be wrong but didn't ray geiger when they were on the show talk about um getting discovered like through their fan art on twitter yeah definitely yeah i i comment when i watch she all the time now because ray told us about their Adventure Zone fan art, and I'm making an Adventure Zone costume of my own right now, cosplay, another form of fan art, and every time something looks a little bit Adventure zone on She-Ra, I'm looking at you, Shattered Catra, from later on in the season. I go, oh, I wonder if that was Ray. I wonder if it was Taz. It's, I mean, I'm sure that these people's fan art is now a part of She-Ra. What's wild is uh, circling back to other guests we've had. So Tom Foss from season one, uh, he interviewed the departed Larry Dottilio in high school uh, for a project, much like I did in eighth grade. Tom just copied off of me. And uh, Larry told Tom that he wasn't a fan of fan fiction because he felt like people should create their own stuff. And with respect to an amazing talent who is no longer with us, I could not disagree more. I think that everyone I know who... Um, is creative now started out doing fan fiction or fan art and even if that's where it stops it's still just so valuable to have a creative outlet right like you can't 
why would you ever take that away from someone? Well, sure, you know, Anne Rice, famous anti-fan fiction author, and I just think that's wild. Wait, excuse me? Yeah. Anne Rice, who wrote vampire stories? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, look it up. Uh, <laughs> would sue people. So um, with Tumblr and Twitter and AO3 and all of the various, you know, for me it was fanfiction.net back when I was writing my Gundam Wing story. Hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You couldn't, you know, you couldn't get into publishing, especially when you're young. And so I don't see the point of reaching the pinnacle of opportunity and being published and being famous and then trying to choke other people and their outlet. Because you might be stopping them from reaching that pinnacle, too. It's selfish. And honestly, when you look at work like uh, this is such a trite example. I'm so sorry to any art historians out there. But, like, how the fuck isn't Andy Warhol just soup fan art, right? Like, <laughs> so much of, like, what we call high art and high culture is just derivative of cultural iconography anyway. What's the difference between fan art and high art? I think the difference is, uh, like, what cultural circles you run in and how hoity-toity people can be about how they discuss your work. Yeah, is not all art just saying you are a fan of something. You right. know, how many uh, Renaissance paintings are just Bible fan art? Exactly. <laughs> right. And superheroes are modern mythology, and now we're just going down a whole other path. But, yes, okay, we've solved it, everybody. Everything is valid. We did it. We won. That's the end of the episode. <laughs> okay. No, it's not. I got more questions. <laughs> uh, so, Faye, I recently got into tarot cards. Um, one of my friends bought me a deck as a housewarming gift for my new apartment. And I'm a believer in the lore that, like, your first deck must be given to you. That person's sort of friendship energy is in the deck. So I'm all, as an atheist, you know, it's bizarre that I'm so, like, jazzed on this one weird spiritual thing but are, are you a fan of tarot i mean what brought you to this medium choice so um i had actually done a zine that was my first contribution to anything tarot related oh yeah and um no i really wanted to make my own and i had thought you know maybe persona because that's really closely related to that kind of thing but someone beat me to the punch so I had to do something different and then I had just recently gotten into Shira and I had seen no one had made their own deck so I thought I'd go for it my favorite one by the by is so far is Entrapta because Entrapta hanging from her hair as the hanged man is so creative and I never would have <laughs> Thank yeah, for you. the for the folks who haven't seen this out there in listener land, can you tell them where it can be found and also who some of the Shira characters are cast as in tarot iconography? Oh yeah, sure. Um, you can find me at Fayreen on Twitter and Tumblr. I post both or both there. Uh, please um, do us a favor and spell that. Okay, so F E Y R E E N E. That's on Twitter because the way I normally spell it was taken on Twitter. <laughs> That's a shame. So <laughs> I know. On Tumblr, it's just F E Y R E N E. Great. That's I just can't on wait to send people to go look at those. Thank you. I'm also setting up an um, online store as uh, Java Kitty on Store Envy, but it's not open yet. So I'll be selling prints. We will be on the, the lookout cards. for it. Yeah, please <laughs> let you. us please yeah. let us know. Do you do conventions as well? Like, do you ever table at fan shows? 
I want to. I've never had the opportunity, but my partner and I are thinking about it, definitely. I bet the folks at PowerCon would love to have you next year. I don't know whether this is public knowledge, but also no one from the organization has ever contacted us. So I'm just going to go ahead and say <laughs> that I'm pretty sure 2020 is a She-Ra year at PowerCon. So uh, nice. yeah, I think that you would fit in really well there. And, and I, it's in California. Uh, right, exactly. It's okay. in Anaheim. Yeah. Anaheim? Yeah. Wow. So it's not too far. Nah, it's just a nice little drive down the five, right? Now we're doing the Californians from SNL. So what you're going to want to do is take the five <laughs> to the 101. Nobody watches SNL anymore but you, Eric. <laughs> yeah, me and boomers. Me and dads. Anyway, the <laughs> so, Californians is also from 15 years ago, by the way. But anyway. Uh, before we get to the episode, the actual She-Ra episode that we're talking about today, I just want to thank the zillion people who did, in fact, share fan art with us. I wanted to do like a McElroy Brothers style, just list of names, and it got way too long. So we're going to just point out a few. Uh, thank you especially to Chris Cook and Joseph Tinman Tanaglia, who shared their own art. Um, I was asking, what's your favorite? And they were brave enough and kind enough to show us their stuff. And it is amazing. Throwing themselves out there. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to me, sidebar, that you know Joe Tanaglia because I knew him at my last job as a manager of a comic store in the suburbs. And he would come do our free comic book days. And all the anime kids loved his work because he's like very detail-oriented, like kind of uh, like pastiche pieces. And they're so, so good. So uh, look up Joe the Tin Man Tanaglia on Facebook. You will love his art. Chris Cook, also super, super good. Yeah, I know Joe from Cosplay. He uh, helped me get a paid gig as Daenerys Targaryen, which anyone who's a longtime listener knows is one of my favorite things to do. Uh, also, Ikemaru is a fan artist who uh, multiple listeners said was their favorite, and so we wanted to give them some face time. And there's just, gosh, 40 more people on this list. Hello to Kiki in Space, Art of Case, Paper Cat... Uh, Kat Kenobi, Fuji Forged, and oh my god, please just go onto our social media after you listen to this episode. I'm going to make just a gallery of um, everything that was sent to us, and I'll give credit, and hopefully we'll sell someone somewhere some prints, because man, take my money. I also want to do a special <laughs> shout out to um, a person whose email we've referenced several times, our, our friend Sean Rose, uh, has been known to do Catra and Adora sketches on his Twitter, uh, Sean Great guy, great artist, love his stuff. He's also a comic artist. He just finished a long comic today called The Song. So, Sean, all these free plugs for you. <laughs> Coming for you, buddy. All these free plugs for you and your Dragon Ball opinions. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking so long at these pictures of you that I almost believe that they're real. Today we are talking Moment of Truth. Here's Eric with the recap. Wow, this is like breaking news. So Moment of Truth is the fourth episode of season three of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. Um, it's kind of the end game of, of She-Ra. And as much as it's all of these narrative threads coming together into a big ass battle. So what happens? Uh, Glimmer and Bo make it back to Bright Moon with Huntara. Uh, Glimmer tries to convince Angela that they have to raid the Fright Zone because 
Catra has captured Adora. Angela doesn't want to hear any of it, so Glimmer turns to the captured Shadow Weaver. And Shadow Weaver, in a really fascinating scene, convinces Glimmer that she can help Glimmer unlock her true power, and she can get Glimmer to the Fright Zone, and they can save Etheria. Uh, that is, Glimmer is convinced, free Shadow Weaver, and Glimmer, Bo, Perfuma, Mermista, and Frosta accompany Shadow Weaver to the Fright Zone. When they're there, they have this really entertaining um, X-Men arcade game style sequence where they keep running into new and new threats and losing members to deal with those threats, and then they reunite at the end, and it's very fun. But essentially, um, Glimmer and Shadow Weaver end up working together to make their way through the Fright Zone into Hordak Sanctum. Uh, when Catra finds out, she is crestfallen. This is probably the fall of Catra emotionally. She cannot believe that Shadow Weaver has not only come back to the Fright Zone, but joined the side of good for, um, because of Adora in her mind. And so Glimmer and Shadow Weaver have Catra on the ropes. Um, at the last moment, Bo convinces them to let her go. Catra uh, retreats. She uh, then, like knocks out Entrapta, who has realized at this point that opening a portal like Hordak wants her to will destroy the world. Uh, so Catra eliminates Entrapta, puts her on a prison transport to, to Beast Island, threatens to do the same to Scorpia, and then lies and tells Hordak that Entrapta let the, uh, let the princesses in the Fright Zone, which is Hordak has a very sad emo moment. Uh, Adora has been trying really hard to convince everyone not to open the portal, but Catra at this point is in full nihilism mode. She doesn't want to hear any objection. She doesn't care that reality is going to be undone. She's ready for it. So the episode ends. Shadow Weaver, Glimmer, and Bo break into the Sanctum. They try to stop Hordak. Uh, in a very kind of 80s princess of power moment, Hordak like throws scenery at them to distract them. Uh, while everything's going to shit around them, uh, and Adora's yelling at the top of her lungs. Catcher decides to pull the lever and open the portal, and then everything goes to white. And that's the episode. I think this is my favorite episode of the show so far. The whole show? Yeah, it's so much. I just, It's so exciting. I've watched it more than any other episode, except maybe Roll For It. And it's just, like, wildly exciting and entertaining and there's so many culminating plot lines uh shout out to Catherine nolfi our friend from last season who wrote this one is so freaking good it is very in a good way formulaic the way you were talking about all of the heroes are there at the beginning and then one by one they get subtracted and then some people have total changes of heart and you're wondering how that's going to change the mathematics and then everyone comes back together at the end for a really big finish it's a I agree, very exciting and well-executed episode. So we talked about how fan art allows you to carry on with maybe plot lines or relationships that aren't covered in the show. This episode shows us a lot of Entrapta and Hordak. And I just, I so badly don't want to like them, and I do. I end up, I end up liking them so much. Entrapta tries to talk to Hordak at the beginning about what if we just did research together forever because she doesn't want their friendship to end. And then you cited the emo moment at the end when Hordak just doesn't want to believe that Entrapta could betray her because he thought what they had was real too. Well, and he is right, to be fair. She did not betray him. And even though I don't support the ship, I also was really sad thinking that Hordak thinks that his boo is, uh, his boo did him dirty. When really it was Catra all along. 
I see a lot of uh, insecurity in Hordak when in this moment, you know, he doesn't give her the benefit of the doubt, honestly, because he think he honestly thinks it's possible that she had done this even throughout everything. That's so true. And I think that plays in really well with uh, with like what we've seen of his arc in the season that he's kind of the sickly clone of Horde Prime. But you're totally right. Like he can't even believe that someone would truly care about him. And I guess that is kind of sad. It's Lauren, it's really the lesson from my favorite Shira episode, the one with the pie, where <laughs> Shira is sad because no one cares about Hordak. And that's that's what this Hordak is dealing with now is he feels like no one cares about him. And even though he's a monster, that's still sad. Well, and for a second, I think he realizes that someone does. And again, he's right. He asks in this episode, where's Entrapta when I need her? And he admits that he's finally left someone else in. Uh, And Entrapta, in turn, before she gets just brutally tased by Catra, says she has to tell Hordak he'll understand. And I think she might be right about that, too. We never get to find out. But she says that if... Hordak knew what would happen to the timeline and all the people in it. He wouldn't pull the lever. And when you see Hordak's face at the end of this episode, not to just skip right to the end, but I don't think he wants to pull it anymore. And I think it's partially because of Entrapta. I don't think he realized um, just the, the consequences of pulling the lever. I don't think he wanted to be destroyed i don't think he wanted that i think he wanted you know a conquest more than anything or to approve himself i don't think he wanted it would be a failure i think to him if everything were to just fall to ruin right his whole thing is kind of revenge not the world ending yeah i think only at the end of the episode only two people well only uh, of the horde only catra realizes what's really going to happen and is still conscious and she's she's ready for it When it comes to the reason that Hordak wanted to pull the lever, I'm fully going to call myself out and say that for once, one of my predictions was wrong. So he really thought he was going to pull the lever and his brothers and Horde Prime would come through, right? I thought where we were going was he was successfully going to open the portal and no one would come. Because of course they wouldn't. Why would they? This entire season, I've been asking, like, if Horde Prime hates you and thinks you're a failure, what good would it do to Horde Prime to, like, come through here and back you up? Why on earth would that happen? And I thought we were going to see the depth to which Hordak sort of deluded himself and the sanctity of his own plan. But no, the whole timeline thing happened. I was wrong. But yeah, speaking of relationships... Boy, Catra really makes a 180 on Scorpia in this episode, doesn't she? It kind of hurt my feelings that after a potential reconciliation in the waste, Catra is so mean and dismissive to Scorpia. Early in the episode, she says, uh, she said something, says something very condescending about, oh, I'm sure you were so helpful in, in working this out. And then at the end, threatens to also tase her and send her to Beast Island for daring to speak up. And it's very heartbreaking. Well, you know my opinion. I thought Catcher was playing her the entire time. But if you were on team, they really had something. Then, yeah, this is extra devastating. I'm on that team. What do you think, Faye? I like them, personally. I think that, you know, I think it was genuine, at least some of it in the Crimson Waste. I think she really considered leaving with her until Adora was mentioned. I think that's just like a switch for her. Nothing really else matters. And I think just 
her involvement with like personal attachments have just left her with nothing but disappointment. You are a Catradora fan. So how did this episode make you feel? Uh, you know, I love the enemies to lovers trope. So I think it's long game, <laughs> long term. <laughs> not expecting anything right now. I actually like that dynamic. Personally, Katra feels wronged. You know, she's a really complicated character. Yeah, I think the scene where she kind of runs through all these emotions confronting Shadow Weaver and Glimmer, it's it's really emotional and like uh, shout out to AJ Machalka. Just an incredible performance in that scene of Katra kind of I think realizing how how despondent she feels at her mother coming back for Adora. But maybe not even for Adora. We should we gotta talk about Shadow Weaver too. But yeah, I think in that moment where Katra's in the tendrils of Shadow Glimmer, uh, I think that's when she switches to like okay, there's nothing left for me. Like, we're going to burn it all down. Yeah, I definitely see that. Catcher also takes things really personal, even if that's not the case. I think that comes a lot from insecurity, honestly. Yeah, and she's kind of been taught that, right? She's been taught by Shadow Weaver to feel bad about herself, but right? you're totally right. <laughs> yeah, and another thing I think is she likes to not take responsibility for bad things because i think oh, so definitely. many right like so many bad things have happened to her i think like where does it end right it's all just one big package of bad she doesn't take any responsibility for her actions at this point no she, she always thinks it's someone else yeah no absolutely yeah she says to shadow weaver like you did this you made me like this which is true but like she's not the one trying to unmake reality at this point <laughs> The most striking moment in this episode for me definitely deals with uh, Katra and Shadow Weaver. The second or maybe third time I watched this one through, because I have watched it several times myself, I took note of the fact that Katra is offered the opportunity to join the side of good. Um, Shadow Weaver, whether or not we believe her motivations, whether or not we truly think she means it when she says, I want to destroy Hordak, she asks Katra multiple times to come with. Granted, it is threatening. It's basically like, join us or I'll murder you. But I think in Shadow Weaver language, that's still legitimate. I think she absolutely would have just said, all right, Katra, get behind me. You're on the team. Let's keep going. And Katra says no. And so Katra is, in fact, offered a chance to reunite with Adora and her mother figure, but because it's not on her own terms, I'm assuming, she refuses. Yeah. I'm not even sure it resonates with her that she was given that offer at all. Shadow Weaver reads as really manipulative. I mean, she's that's her thing. It's like she's, she's a really selfish character. I really love Shadow Weaver, but you, you can't deny that as a person, that's all it is. I I'm, feel like Catra's more of a nuisance than anything at this point, so it would just make it easier on her. It's like, hey. Well, Catra also also says to Shadow Weaver, now you get to be the good guy. And I think it's wild that Catra is willing to call the other side good. She is declaring that she's on the side of evil even, and she doesn't care. For a while in, you know, season one, Catra really thought the Horde was doing the right thing. The Horde was a liberating force. And she clearly doesn't think that anymore. 
she clearly recognizes evil and does not care. I think what we're dancing around, and, and Faye addressed it pretty directly, we got to talk about it. How do we feel about, quote, good Shadow Weaver? Do we believe her at all? Like, what are her actual goals? I have feelings, but I'm sure you both do too. Um, again, I just, I see the manipulation. Even when she taught Adora how to heal, it was only for her benefit, you know? Mm. And with Glimmer, it's just power, I think. She's yes. going to manipulate another child. Like, the cycle of abuse will just continue, especially with uh, the next episode happening. It does seem like Glimmer gives Shadow Weaver the power that she craves, I, yet I can't help but feel like some of her plea, again, is is earnest. Like, it really does seem like she doesn't want reality to be destroyed, which is self-serving, but also somewhat noble, I suppose. And it does seem, I agree with Lauren, that she is offering Catra a chance. Maybe not a great chance, but like, hey, I will ignore you and not kill you if you just get out of my way. I, I definitely think at least for now, Shadow Weaver is on Team Good, Team Adora, with you know a big caveat next to that. So as far as this episode is concerned, Shadow Weaver always gets points with me because she's kind of right. Shadow Weaver is the bad guy that has a point. And if Angela had stopped Glimmer, Glimmer would never have known this amazing teleportation power that she has, she would have been limited. And Shadow Weaver is correct about Glimmer's potential. And it's that seed of truth that makes Shadow Weaver such an interesting character, both in old vintage She-Ra and new She-Ra. She brags, I'm the only sorceress to ever tap into a runestone. And so I think the answer is right now she's on Team Adora. And then in the end, she'll be on Team Shadow Weaver. Yeah. I, I love that line where she tells Glimmer, you think of yourself only as a princess, but you're the descendant of a powerful sorcerer. I think that says a lot. And I think ultimately she's still very fixated on Adora and she's fixated on not being erased by whatever Catra's doing. I'd say that's her key goal is self-preservation. For sure. And I, I think we're, we're obviously never going to get to see this as much as I would like to. But if Shadow Weaver, you know, wins the Game of Thrones and gets the crown at the end, she'll wipe out everybody. She'll she'll wipe out both sides if it means she gets to be top dog here in this world. But for now, she's on whatever team is going to get her closest to doing that. I, I love the shot of uh, Shadow Weaver and Glimmer kind of teleporting to the Fright Zone because like Shadow Weaver conjures her runes. And then there's a very beautifully animated sequence where she sticks her hand through one of the circular runes and offers it to Glimmer. And that just feels like so symbolic of, of this like Faustian bargain that Glimmer may or may not be about to make. But the thing is the episode doesn't really focus on that too much. Like Glimmer's pretty on board with like, okay, don't take too much power, but like we're going to use this power to do stuff. Yeah, Bo stops them at one point because Glimmer is sort of wincing, and I think Bo correctly says, stop, you're taking too much. But there's no no big trap, you know, mm -mm. shuts on Glimmer. I mean, it's still kind of legitimate. No, the first time I watched this, I kept waiting for Shadow Weaver to turn traitor, and she doesn't. It's almost reminiscent of um, Avatar, where one of the bloodbenders uh, tempts Katara with power, but... You know, that power also comes with the price. And just, I think, Shadow Weaver's knowledge 
of maybe she feels some kind of kinship with her father. Yeah. It's just like because she was, you know, his mentor. That's such a good point. I bet Glimmer does in some way feel like she's getting closer to her dad through this. And Avatar is such a great comparison. Um, a lot of those themes come through in this show. But I have thought myself in the past that um, Shadow Weaver does remind me of, of bloodbending in that she's using the magic available in this world. She's just using it in a way that most of the world would find despicable and haunting. Uh, we see that much earlier when she's with Micah, and we're kind of seeing it now, too. But, you know, as Avatar also shows us, sometimes bloodbenders have a point. Bloodbenders do a lot of spooky, spooky damage. animation you are absolutely correct the animation around you know glimmer sort of disappearing through this portal is really gorgeous but angela has some really cool animation too when she is at the beginning of this episode saying we have to plan i'm not going to lose anyone else i'm the queen and she's really showing her authority her wingspan, you know, shoots outward and fills yeah. the entire screen and that was really cool looking too we get to see different types of power and different use of, of light, actually. Literally light and darkness animated symbolically. Oh, Glimmer and Angela have an incredible conversation. And, I mean, I don't want to spoil too hard the rest of the season, but I think this is their last. <laughs> I think everyone's watched it by now, but we will get there in another episode. Yeah. So speaking of the Angela spoiler, I was listening to this episode really closely and Entrapta clearly explains, at least as far as her understanding goes, that a warped reality will be created that will collapse in on itself and erase us from existence. So thinking ahead to a thing we won't talk about right now, they're at least trying to convince us that this world isn't going to be anymore it is it is wiped away so we'll talk about that some other time i just wanted to plant that seed another really touching part of this episode that we must talk about is we finally get to tell entrapta that we didn't mean to leave her behind entrapta looks at her data and her data tells her that catcher is a friend maybe that data is flawed depending on your interpretation of this show i think we see by the end of the episode it's pretty flawed yeah well, you know, your friends make bad decisions. And I think even Entrapta, after all of this, might say Catra's a friend that made some bad decisions because she likes Hordak. But I was hoping for a much um, greater and more immediate sort of reconciliation with Entrapta. But as usual, Entrapta walks that middle line. And uh, my interpretation of this was that Entrapta's not necessarily evil, but she thinks the experiments they're doing are more about exploration and innovation, and she doesn't seem entirely clued into the whole conquering army part of it, or maybe she doesn't care. You know what I notice, though, is when Adora tries to reconcile with Entrapta, what does Entrapta do? She puts her mask on. I think, I mean, I don't want to comment too hard on the neurodivergence angle, but... It's a pretty tacit 
recognition to me that she doesn't want to engage with the emotional reality of what's happening because the way she's choosing to process it is is a different way. Yeah, I mean, she hides her face. So I thought that was very, it was, it was kind of touching. And I think uh, kind of she bonds maybe most legitimately with Scorpia in this episode and seeing that the end truly is nigh is uh is enough to maybe knock her out of her her stupor but again i don't know that she turns on hordak i think she's turning on the plan only yeah i think at the end of this episode maybe entrapta is entertaining a scenario an unreasonable scenario in which everyone comes to an understanding and everyone reads the data and is in agreement that's never going to happen. I really like the parallel between Entrapta saving Katra from Beast Island and then having sent Entrapta to the same place she tried to save her from. I forgot. I thought that Entrapta was really that. ironic. That's cool. It's very rude. <laughs> Katra is a little gone at this point. I think it was more so panic than anything. Do you think we're ever going to see Beast Island? I hope so. I I, I talk to Eric often about how everything on this show ends up coming back. Like if they me- if they mention something, it ends up coming back. And so I can't j- just like I'm I'm still waiting to see what Eternia is in this universe because we've used the word Eternia and even Grayskull. We haven't even ever really investigated the fact that for the honor of Grayskull. Must mean something, and no one seems to care. One person says it in one of the shorts, in the Perfuma short. One of the villagers is like, what's Grayskull? Right. And we know those questions are going to get answered someday. They have to be. And so I bet we'll see Be Silent, too. That would be super cool. You know what I bet, though? I bet this new show does not have an episode where Adora goes to Beast Island and gets amnesia called Jungle Fever. I hope not. (laughs) In today's story, Tawny found out that it's better to be a beast protector than it is to be a beast warrior. It's the same in your world, too. What I mean is, rather than being mean to animals, be kind to them. Be an animal protector. Bye now, my animal protector friends. So I think that brings us to the end of our discussion, a moment of truth. Uh, Faye, once again, thank you so much for joining us and playing through technical difficulties from last week. Uh, Once again, can you let folks know where your awesome art is? Yeah, of course. Um, Faye Reen on Tumblr and Twitter, F-E-Y-R-E-E-N-E on Twitter, and... um, F-E-Y-R-E-N-E on Tumblr. So I will be opening pre-orders on the um, online store that I mentioned before, if that's something that you're into for the prints. And do you see yourself printing a full tarot deck? Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, I'm really conflicted if I should do maybe a Kickstarter. I had never done a project like this before, so... I'm a little lost on where to begin, but it's definitely an option I'm looking into. Well, if you do one, we will share the link because now you're part of the family. (laughs) Definitely let us know when prints become for sale because I don't think I've ever said it on mic, but my dream here at Cards Against Humanity, uh, this is a studio that we share with many, many, many popular podcasts. And the only She-Ra thing in the studio right now is my son, Lookie. 
And she means an action figure, a two-pack of Lucky and Cowell, just so no one's too creeped out. Everyone knows the story of my son by now. But anyway, I want to fill the studio with She-Ra art. <laughs> no, just little by little, piece by piece, until someone yells at us. I want to know where the tipping point is that we finally get scolded for taking up too much real estate. So and help us out. I have to work here, so I'm looking forward to the day I get a slack where someone's like, Eric, what's going on in the studio? <laughs> and Lauren will never have to know. No consequences for Lauren. <laughs> never. Thanks for listening to she Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower. <laughs>